Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Let me first apologize. Your girl has bronchitis, but we can't stop justice just because of a little sickness. So you're stuck with this voice. Today, we'll be covering the suspicious death of Taylor Gruwell in Dallas, Texas. Let's get right to it. Taylor Gruwell was born on November 22, 1990 in Muncie, Indiana. November 22nd just happened to be Thanksgiving Day that year. Taylor's mom was overdue, and as Taylor's parents were getting ready to go and visit family for all the turkey and football they could stand, Taylor's mom said, it's time. And Taylor's dad, Rich, being the typical male, said, no, no, it's Thanksgiving, there's football. But there would be no football that day. Instead, there would be a hospital, three hours of labor, and a beautiful baby girl. Taylor's parents, of course, were absolutely smitten. Taylor was mommy's little princess, and mom made sure she was always looking extra fancy in her little dresses with a bow on top of her head. And Taylor's dad, he and Taylor shared a special bond right from the start. From the moment they could walk and talk, Taylor and her brother Trey were the best of friends. They were less than a year apart in age and were more like twins. They were quite the adventurous pair and made sure to get in lots of trouble together. They ate the same foods. When one cried, so did the other. They couldn't be separated, even to sleep. And as long as they had each other, they were golden. They were partners in crime and what one didn't think of, the other absolutely did. Taylor's dad, Rich, recalls getting a phone call from his neighbor when the pair were four and five. The neighbor. Hey, Rich. Rich, what's up? Do you know where Taylor and Trey are? Uh, yeah, they're right here. Um, no, they're at my house. The neighbor then says that she got a phone call from another neighbor who called because there were children playing in her yard in the water hose, and those children match the description of Taylor and Trey. Rich runs over to her house as fast as he can. And what does he find when he gets there? Taylor and Trey, in shorts, topless, and having the time of their lives playing in the garden house. He walks them home, one in each hand, dripping wet and totally satisfied with themselves. He couldn't even be mad. When Taylor was four, her baby sister Caroline was born. Taylor was quite the mother hen and Caroline's protector. She loved her baby sister so very much. They were your all-American family. They went on sledding trips, vacations, and just loved living life. There were nightly dinners together as a family, a home full of laughter and love. When Taylor was about 10, she expressed interest in sports, and she was a good athlete. She played volleyball and softball and loved every minute of it. But her dad was shocked when she told him that she wanted to play basketball, telling her, uh, Taylor, you can't even hold a basketball. But Taylor is adamant that he teach her, and she bugs the shit out of him until he gives in. She couldn't even dribble at first. 
So Rich drags out old folding chairs, gets these visors that prevent you from seeing the basketball so you have to learn to feel the ball and dribble while looking up. And he sets up a little training camp for Taylor. And she's there every day waiting for her dad to get off work. She's ready to go. She joins the team. Her dad is at every game in practice. And then it happens. You know, the moment every dad dreams of watching all their hard work pay off. Taylor's out there on the court. She grabs a rebound and she's definitely supposed to pass the ball to a guard down on the other side of the court. But Rich recalls this look in her eye and he knew exactly what she was going to do. Taylor snags the rebound and dribbles it all the way across the court and lays it up. She looks up in the stands directly at Rich as if to say, look, dad, I did it. And if you've ever watched a basketball game and seen a player make an amazing shot and points to the camera or family or fans, then you know the look. She was so proud and her dad was too. As a young teenager, Taylor had a million friends. She was the funniest, most sarcastic girl in the room. She was deeply loyal to her friends. She was the enforcer, the one they called when they needed backup. She was into makeup and clothes and all things girly. Yet Taylor was tough, and she knew how to hold her own. Years of sports and growing up with a brother had made her that way. Everything was going absolutely perfect, until it just wasn't. When Taylor was 16, her parents divorced. It took a toll on Taylor. The family that had always been so close was splitting up, and it wasn't long before new partners, new siblings were all added into the mix. Taylor seemed to struggle with where she wanted to be. She moved back and forth between Texas and Indiana during those teenage years. In Indiana, she had all of her old friends and her sister, Rich's daughter from a previous relationship with whom Taylor was very closely bonded with. In Texas, she had her new friends and the other half of her family. Being a military wife and moving a lot, I totally understand that struggle. The feeling that half your heart is in one place and the other half in another. It makes things so hard. You never really feel completely whole or at home anywhere. When Taylor was 18 years old, she began to struggle mentally. She hadn't met the right guy. She was struggling with the separation of her family. 18 can be hard, and it was hard for Taylor. She started using prescription pills as a way to ease the pain. A quick fix. Just take this little pill and everything goes away. All the stress, all the anxiety, but we know how that story goes. It wasn't too long before that little pill started to overtake her life. In 2010, Taylor calls her dad and says, Daddy, I'm hungry. Rich goes and gets his daughter. Her clothes are dirty and it's apparent she hasn't eaten in a few days. They go to the grocery store and he lets her choose whatever she wants. He recalls, it's almost like she was five years old again, grabbing all the mac and cheese and snacks she could fit into the cart. She goes home with her dad and she's trying to get herself right, but the addiction wins over and she's gone in two days. Taylor struggles on and off for the next several years, but in July of 2013, she gives birth to a beautiful baby girl and this changes everything for her. She remains healthy for her daughter. She's a great mom and it's undeniable that she loves her little girl. A couple years after the birth of their baby girl, Taylor and the baby's father marry and become a little family. In December of 2015, this little family of three becomes a family of four. Taylor gives birth to a son, and she is over the moon. Her children mean the world to her, and she loves being a mom. 
but shortly after her son is born, Taylor starts drinking. Her family is getting worried again. They suspect she may have been suffering from some sort of postpartum depression. I mean, a woman's body goes through so many changes throughout pregnancy, birth, and then after birth. It can be an intense time. Hormones are real, y'all, and if you've experienced it, then you know. And chances are, if you've given birth, you've experienced some form of the baby blues, postpartum depression, or even postpartum psychosis. It's so common. According to the Mayo Clinic, there are more than 3 million cases of postpartum depression in the U.S. alone every single year. The percentage is believed to be somewhere around 20% of mothers in the United States, and that's just reported cases. It is highly underreported because of the stigma surrounding it, and it just shouldn't be because it's literally so common, and there are so many resources available. If you're struggling with any post-pregnancy mood disorders and you're listening right now, know that you are not alone and there is help available. Taylor is struggling. She's doing her best to hold everything together, but everything starts to fall apart and spiral completely out of control. She seeks help and enters treatment several times, but she just can't seem to get traction. This too is super common. In fact, somewhere between 40 and 60% of people who seek treatment relapse at least once, many people multiple times. And it's because addiction is so damn complex. Addiction is generally a symptom of a deeper problem, and there are so many factors at play. Mental health, genetic predisposition, trauma, and that's just a few. Every case is different, and what works for one person isn't going to work for another. That's why it's so important to keep trying and to support those in your life who are struggling. On August 8, 2017, Taylor reaches her hand out once again for help, and she voluntarily enters a treatment facility. If you listened to Mercedes' episode last week, this is when the two met. And if you haven't, you should definitely go back and give it a listen. Taylor's writings show that at first she wasn't exactly thrilled being there, but a few weeks in and all that begins to change. She has the support of her family, especially her mom, who frequently visits her at the center and takes her to all her doctor's appointments. Her entire family is behind her and it feels different this time. Taylor wants this. She is so ecstatic to start a new life and be back with her children. It's all she can think about. It's all she can write about and it's all she can talk about. She is so ready to squeeze those babes and get herself on the right track. In a letter to her family, Taylor writes, Gratitude. Number one, I'm grateful to be alive. Number two, I'm grateful for my kids. Number three, family. Number four, sobriety. Number five, to have the chance to start over. Taylor is allowed a short visit with both of her kids while in treatment. She's so happy to see them, and they're so excited. She tells them, Mommy's going to get out soon. I can't wait to be with you. Little did Taylor know that would be the last time she would ever get the opportunity to see her children. Taylor, Mercedes, and a guy named Cody are all at this rehab center together, and they become close friends, leaning on each other for support. But Taylor's mother recalls a visit at the facility in which she saw Cody and everything about him and the way he looked at her daughter fell off. She was concerned. On September 19th, 2017, Cody decides this just isn't for him. And for whatever reason, he leaves. 
On September 21, 2017, two days later, he returns to the facility and picks up Taylor. Taylor leaves all of her possessions, her wallet, makeup, hairbrush, everything behind and hops in Cody's black Honda Accord. At 6.56 p.m., Taylor calls her mom asking for money. Two minutes later, at 6.58 p.m., Taylor places another call to her dad asking for gas money. He refuses, asks why she is no longer in treatment, and offers to go pick her up. Taylor doesn't give him an answer as to why she left. On September 23, 2017, at approximately 11 p.m., in video surveillance footage released by the Dallas Police Department, Taylor and Cody are seen arriving in the parking garage of the very upscale Icon at Ross Apartments in Dallas, Texas. They're walking together, holding hands, but Taylor seems distraught and keeps pulling away from Cody. It appears that they are arguing about something. At one point, before getting into Cody's car, Taylor puts her hands up to her face as if she can't believe what is happening. Make no mistake, this is no lover's stroll through the parking garage. You can see the video yourself. I'll link it to my Facebook. They are captured on surveillance heading to the fifth floor of the apartment complex. It's there on the fifth floor that something happens. Taylor goes over the four-foot wall surrounding the parking garage. Her watch stops at exactly 11.06 p.m. It's confirmed by surveillance. Taylor's body impacts the ground at 11.06. Approximately six minutes. Six minutes and Taylor's life is abruptly cut short. Cody is captured on surveillance just moments after 11.06, heading down to the third floor to meet with two unidentified men. He enters apartment 214 for just a few moments. All three men are captured on surveillance exiting the apartment. A small exchange is captured. It's important to note that Cody seems to be interacting completely normally while dealing with these two. According to police reports, Cody was buying drugs from the two men. All three men head up to the fifth floor. Minutes later, they return back to the third floor where Cody gets in his black Honda and the two men hop in a separate vehicle and leave. Contact has been made with these two males' attorney, and they refuse to give statements or assist in the investigation at all. There is no call placed to 911 by Cody or the other two men. Nothing. At approximately 11.22 p.m., a group of friends walking around the apartment complex after just being dropped off by their Uber stumble upon Taylor Gruwell lying severely injured in front of an exit gate at Icon Apartments at Ross. They attempt to check for a pulse and offer assistance, but are unable to due to Taylor's injury. A 911 call is made. First responders show up and attempt life-saving measures, and Taylor is transported to Parkland Hospital, where 15 minutes after her arrival, Taylor is pronounced dead. According to a police report, officers go back to the offense scene and observe a 2003 white Ford Ranger with a busted driver's side window and a fire extinguisher visible in the driver's seat. Glass was visible on the pavement and inside the vehicle. A fire extinguisher pin was on the pavement in space 55, and this area is believed to be where Taylor fell or was pushed off the parking garage. A bloodstain is noted on the concrete in front of the exit gate at ground level, right below where the truck was parked. The truck is towed and impounded by the Dallas City Police. Investigators continue to process the scene. 
Meanwhile, Taylor's family isn't immediately notified because remember, Taylor had left all of her possessions at the rehab center. Police begin working on identifying Taylor, and the very beginning stages of the investigation into Taylor's death is classified by police as a homicide, and there's plenty of reasons why. Before Taylor's family has even been notified of her death, according to police reports, on September 26, 2017, two officers were dispatched to 7567 Greenville Avenue in reference an unknown male passed out inside a black vehicle. The white male appears to be under the influence of alcohol or drugs. This white male was identified in reports as William Cody Marley. The responding officers note that there is a large bump on his forehead, but that Cody refused treatment for his injuries. According to this report, and I quote, witness, and by witness, they mean Cody, then asked officers if they heard of a female that jumped from a building downtown on Saturday. Both officers responded no. Witness then stated that the female was a friend of his and he wanted to know if it was true or not that she had jumped off of a roof from downtown and died. A Dallas fire rescue officer had heard of the incident and Googled the incident for the witness. Witness then elaborated that an unknown detective had phoned his mother and wanted to speak with him. Witness stated that the detective said, I'm with the prime suspect, but man, I had nothing to do with her jumping. Man, she has two beautiful kids and I can't believe she did that. Witness stated that he left the suspect in his car with his dog while he went up to his friend's apartment. When he returned, she was gone. Witness then went on to say that he looked for the witness for about two hours but could not find her. Witness was rambling about he and the female by the name of Taylor G. argued earlier. Witness was intoxicated as he was talking with officers. End quote. Let's take this initial statement apart line by line. First, the bump on Cody's head. Where did that come from? He didn't wreck. No altercation is captured on video, yet he has a bump large enough on his head that he is offered medical attention. Interesting. Cody is the first one to mention Taylor. These officers had no clue and made absolutely no mention of Taylor or what had happened. How did he even know? And why throw in the detail about the detective phoning mom? These officers were responding because your ass was drunk and passed out in your truck. Prime suspect? Can't believe she did this? They were there to assist you. Old sayings become old sayings because they carry some truth. You know that one about drunk men telling no lies? I'm just going to drop it right here. William Cody Marley is listed in a Dallas Police Department field note entry as a suspect. The offense? Murder. The victim? Taylor Gruwell. And several injuries are noted in addition to the bump on the head. Right knee, left elbow, right hand, left lower back, right eye, and forehead. It appears Cody was in a fight with someone. He's taken in for questioning at 10.09 a.m. on Tuesday, September 26, 2017. His injuries are documented and photographed, and the true picture starts to emerge. Cody immediately lawyers up and refuses to speak to law enforcement. 
to date, he has never sat down and talked with investigators about Taylor's case. Instead, his lawyer sent a written statement from Cody to investigators. We'll get to that later. A search warrant is obtained for Cody's phone. For subscriber information, call detail records both incoming and outgoing with cell site information, text messages incoming and outgoing, data detail information incoming and outgoing with cell site information, billing information, and transaction history, customer service rep comments and notes, subscriber information for any phone number that appears on the requested call detail records. Basically, everything. And it is stated in the affidavit for the search warrant, quote, it is the belief of Affiant, and he hereby charges and accuses that cell phone text messages and records may contain critical information that indicates the suspect committed this offense. There's that word suspect again. It also stated in the affidavit that there were several signs of the crime scene identifying that a crime may have occurred. The reason the search warrant is needed? Cody, Taylor's good friend, remember? refuses to unlock his phone for the police. I mean, it's obvious that he's got some extracurricular activities going on, right? But that's not what the police are interested in. The police are interested in what happened to Taylor and what exactly caused her to fall five stories to her death. Your little dope game doesn't concern them. Witnesses and friends are interviewed by police and it's pretty obvious that lies are being thrown around like mud in a pig pen. Taylor's autopsy is performed, and what is revealed by the documented injuries is astounding. I'll be covering all of the evidence obtained so far in this case and detailing exactly what Taylor's autopsy reveals next week. A lot is revealed in the autopsy, and I don't want you guys to miss a single detail. But I'll leave you with this. Taylor fought. Taylor fought hard. She fought through her addiction, she fought through her mental health struggles, and Taylor fought on the fifth floor of that parking garage on September 23rd, 2017 at approximately 11 p.m., this time for her life. And because Taylor fought, we fight. We must fight for justice, and it's going to be a fight. Dallas Police Department lists Taylor's case as an unexplained death. It's a far cry from what was documented in the police reports in the beginning, and in my opinion, the evidence that has been obtained creates an even stronger case for murder than those initial reports. William Cody Marley walks the streets as a free man today. He has never been arrested or charged in anything relating to Taylor's case. The two men from the apartment complex, they've yet to be questioned. They've also lawyered up. And I want to point something out here. Lawyered up doesn't mean you can't answer questions. There's a right way to lawyer up. You can absolutely lawyer up. I mean, honestly, I would if I was a witness to any serious crime, but I'd be cooperative 100%, especially in the death of my so-called friend. There's a difference between lawyered up and cooperative and lawyered up and uncooperative. Taylor Nicole Gruel deserves justice. Her family deserves justice. Her mother, father, siblings, extended family, friends, her children. Taylor's children were her world, and now they are forced to grow up without her. 
Taylor may have had her struggles. We all do. But that doesn't decrease her value as a person. Not in the least. It doesn't make what happened to her okay or somehow less devastating. Taylor was on her way to her redemption story. Tragically, that was taken away before it was done being written. Taylor is loved. Taylor is missed. This has devastated her family. This family will never be the same again without her presence. It's been three years. It's beyond time for someone to come forward. Someone knows exactly what happened on that rooftop and they need to start talking. The first one to talk usually walks. And trust me, boys, this isn't going away. Taylor will not be forgotten and her dad is not going to stop fighting. Not now, not ever. If you have any information on the suspicious death of Taylor Gruwell, please contact the Dallas Police Department, Detective Cheney, at 214-671-3650. Do the right thing. A special shout out to Taylor's dad, Rich, for allowing me to cover her case and opening up about your beautiful girl. Needless to say, I'll be on this case for the long haul. Part number two of Taylor's case will be out next Thursday. You can head over to my Facebook page, at least of these, for links, photos, and more information on Taylor's case. I can't wait to bring you part two. Can't forget that shout out to Joe Amaro Perez at Sickly Tower Music for that amazing original theme song. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for caring. If you know something, say something. Until next time, be good to each other.